podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation. Remember your training to fly the airplane. Advise when ready to taxi. In position. Okay. Um, now you need an opener for those, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Is that I, so? That makes it a real beer, or not? I don't know. How does that work? It's uh, carry it that out makes it in, that makes it inconvenient. <laughs> That's right. Hey, so David, what's the story here? You posted a thing about uh, uh, the the CAF uh, uh, versus the USAFM over an F eighty two. Once once upon a time, I tried to actually expand these acronyms during the podcast, and I, <laughs> and I got them all wrong. So I'm no longer expanding acronyms. You tell us what CAF USAFM F eighty two means. And what? Why yeah. is it shame on the museum? I think it's shame on the museum. We're talking about uh, a, a twin Mustang. They called it F eighty two. Came in, I, I guess, right in the years between World War Two and Korea, uh, and was actually used in combat uh, in Korea. And twenty odd years ago, forty odd years ago, back in the sixties, the U.S. Air Force officially on paper conferred title to this airplane to the CAF first it went to the CAF on loan they fixed it up, got it flying, then a year later the Air Force said you know, you're doing good by the airplane it's yours, you can register it with the FAA and you know, get insurance and have title and put it on the asset list and a whole bit Uh, then unfortunately about 20 years ago it was damaged uh, in an accident while flying a show display uh, reparable but expensive and it's only recently that uh, a volunteer fundy, funder uh, a sugar daddy I guess would be the way to put it uh, has come forward offering to support the CAF's restoration of this airplane in the meantime the US Air Force Museum ah, okay. has gotten word about the airplane's uh, existence. Apparently, it kind of been lost in thought. And the director over there uh, has demanded that the CAF, after all these years, return the airplane to, to the museum. And the CAF first feels, and, and well, I'm not a lawyer, but it, it looks pretty black letter, uh, you know, conferred title and the paperwork that I read says, and, you know, we're giving up all our rights and claims on this airplane. Uh, the CAF has the opportunity to restore it, put it back on the show circuit, uh, help preserve the memory of the, of the people who built it and flew it and maintained it. Uh, the museum wants to put it on display. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that's not equitable. Sitting in a sitting in a museum is is really nice for for uh, relics that can only be representative of the period, but for an airplane that could actually be up and showing the world. Uh, and besides, it's been 40-odd years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right. the director over there seems to have uh, a reading of, of, of law that says that the Air Force can never completely give up its claim on an airplane. 
Uh, and if that's the case, there's a whole lot of private owners of old Air Force and Army Air Corps airplanes out there that should be quicken in their freaking boots. Because if they can do this to the CAF after 40-odd years, they can do it to any individual owner that they want to, that they decide, you know, somebody that's flying an old Mustang or a Corsair, for example. Uh, suddenly, their ownership's not safe if they can do this. So it's like it's jointly owned. Yes. Yeah, well, it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it it, it that does suck. That, that really sucks. I mean, uh, what's uh, wh- why is this politics or do they just really really suddenly discover they love this airplane or uh, you know, it's really hard it's really hard to say not And, and Jeb gives a great big sigh when I say is it just politics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the automatic answer is what isn't these days. Yeah. Uh, uh and why this time with this museum director after 42 years, folks, Yeah, 42 years, uh, that's, that's a long time to let somebody else care, tend to, and, 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 and pay attention to an airplane, even if it's not been flyable. You need to go to the Museum of Museum Directors. Yeah, man, yeah. Uh, so you know my, my my point of view, strictly this boy's point of view, you know, shame on the on on this on on these folks in Dayton for or putting the CAF through the time and expense of having to defend what's black what what seems to be black letter uh, conveyance of the airplane. Oh, uh, that's too bad. So the the what happened is the CAF went to court to to fight this. Yeah, and a federal court ruled in favor of the museum. Uh, which means that the CAF, and they've already said this, is going to kick this up to the next level. Uh, they're appealing the decision. Uh, there would seem to be a lot of precedent behind the Air Force's actions back in the 60s based on all the other bloody airplanes, hundreds of which are out there flying in private hands because the Air Force, the Marine Corps, the Navy conveyed clear title to those. Otherwise, these folks couldn't own upkeep, let alone insure or finance any of these airplanes. Wasn't there some, th- this is ringing a bell, wasn't there some threat, some, some not a threat, like, but just a, a danger, a, a concern about maybe 10 years ago that the federal government was going to do something that was going to make all of the privately held warbirds somehow non-airworthy? Or- what, what, what you're thinking of is, is something called demilitarization. Uh-huh. And it was a uh, provision in a defense uh, Pentagon authorization bill. I don't know if it was 10 years ago. Probably was. thereabouts somewhere it's, in there. It's been a while back, but, yeah. But basically it required that any uh, property transferred from the federal government to private ownership or any property previously transferred from the federal government to private ownership that had uh, some – kind of any kind of military use would have to be rendered inoperable Mm -hmm. in some fashion now initially they were talking about taking the firing pins out of m1 carbines right disabling the ejection seats i mean exactly well i don't even think they thought about ejection seats um but it turned into uh wait a second you're going to chop the wings off all the p51s out there Mm mm-hmm and uh, yeah, somebody uh, cool- read this in an extreme yeah. interpretation. Yeah. Cooler heads eventually prevailed, but I don't know much more about it than that. I don't know 
in reading down into the fine print on the CIF press release, um, it's it CIF tends to think that it is really um, one guy who is the problem here, um, and um, uh, I guess I guess the, Met, the uh, Charles Metcalf, the director of the uh, Air Force Museum. Um, and uh, apparently he's stuck by his guns, hmm. uh, so, so to speak. Um, it's, it, I, think, I think the Air Force probably has a few other things it should be worrying about right now. Yeah, really, really. I don't know what's to be done about this from our point of view, but it certainly wouldn't hurt if you're not already a member of the CAF to uh, become a member or send a donation their way or something like that. Uh, or- it, all, it also wouldn't hurt to uh, you know, uh, drop a small note or an email to your senator and your congressman, uh-huh. who this time of year... Or this, this particular, particular year, year yeah. are, are, are all, particularly all sensitive to input from their constituents, yeah. and 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 getting word to a, a bunch of senators and and members of uh, the House of Representatives, all of which are capable of dropping their own note of inquiry to the director of the U.S. Air Force Museum, asking, "WTF?" Mm-hmm. Uh, that alone can can and can move mountains. So yeah. very good. It's that's why this is on the list. I'm sorry for you. Yeah. Say again. They're very good at expressing outrage at this time of year, the politicians. Oh, yeah. 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 So, well, anyways, so, well, on that note, let me say uh, welcome, folks, to episode number 99. 99. Dun, 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 dun. Of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Uh, we're recording this episode on Thursday evening, September 11th, 2008. Uh, uh, a, a somewhat sad day, but... but I don't know, not a sad day, a, a day for us to be strong, I guess. A uh, memorable day. Yeah. Um, let me say hi to the, to the folks, uh, the gang who are here in the virtual hangar this evening. That voice right there is Dave Higdon, and Dave's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, Dave. How you all doing this evening? Hello, everybody. I hope the weather's better where you are. You say it's raining, huh? Uh, it uh, moved in. Well, it's been damp off and on the last several days, uh, but this, this latest moved in... Uh, I don't know, about 10 o'clock this morning, and the Prague show it staying with us until tomorrow evening uh, and into the weekend, at which point we're supposed to start to feel the precipitation impact of the remnants of Hurricane Ike. Ah, yes, okay. So, you know, we've got got, uh, people already talking about flood provisions up here. Ironically, you'll get more of Ike than I will. Yeah, well... Yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, that's Jeb Burnside, and Jeb is talking to us from Sarasota, Florida, where there's currently no hurricanes, right? There are there, <laughs> there are no hurricanes down here. We 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 have dodged uh, all of them so far. So now, far, there, not not there's one. A, there's a slogan for the Florida tourism business: <laughs> Florida hurricane free since last Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, talk, talk to me Sunday. <laughs> when, 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 when I comes barreling through and tell me how it's going, okay? Yeah, oh, listen, I know what to expect. I've sat through this before uh, in a couple of other parts of the country where uh, we were uh, a little bit closer to shore, still not close enough to, uh, you know, the waterfront for it to still be carrying hurricane force winds, uh, but still pretty blustery. One where you looked outside and looked at the birds, and the birds looked and said, "Man, you got a spare hangar somewhere?" <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember when Isabel came through the Mid Atlantic. Um, it just so happened I had a reason to travel, so I just uh, I was a little bit worried about 
being around because I knew the wind was going to be blowing, and I wasn't really enthused with the idea of leaving the airplane there. So I, you know, skinned more than one cat and uh, hopped in the airplane and flew down to Houston for business, and then turned around and came back. Yep. Uh, there you go. And- there you go. Good plan. Good plan. Good plan. Hey, and also joining us uh, in the hangar for the first time uh, this week is uh, a good friend of the podcast, uh, Farid Guillaume, is uh, also known uh, to folks who listen to EA Radio as Afterburner Al. How you doing, Farid? Doing well, working from home, uh-huh. now that you have an extra seat in a virtual hangar. That's right, that's right. Fareed's talking to us from his home in Rockford, Illinois, a, a very a legendary EAA location, of course. That's uh, right. Yeah. And uh, um, normally I hold introductions to the end, but for folks who are not familiar with Fareed, and by the way, um, although this is his first time here in the virtual hangar, um, we were guests of his on EA Radio a number of different times over the last couple summers, and uh, we've uh, we, we've always tried to express as best we can our, our gratitude for that. It's always been a blast and catching in the chips aren't you yes yeah. <laughs> uh, but for those who aren't familiar with with farid uh he is the co-station manager of ea radio at air venture each summer and his day job is as a pilot for a fractional ownership company where he flies a cessna cj3 uh so that's kind of cool i'm uh, on house arrest this week that's right you weren't even sure if you're going to, be able to join us because you're i don't know on call or something like that you're you could you could the, the horn could go off any minute now you'd have to grab your helmet and run for the plane right scramble well, scramble I'm a seven on seven on, and last week uh, half of my uh, seven on was spent in Orlando at flight safety, and that was in between hurricanes. And uh, so, because I was gone so long, they had to give me extra time off, and so uh, I didn't start my work week until t- uh, today, actually. However, since I have jury duty on Monday, it doesn't make any sense for them to send me out. So I'm kind of on deep backup right now. I see. I see. <laughs> let me come back deep to that. Backup. Fl- let me come back to that flight safety thing in a second. But first, let me say that I am Jack Hodgson. And, Yay! And I'm sitting up you here. Sure. It's at, at UCAP World Headquarters in Dover, New Hampshire. I'm home again here, but uh, <laughs> I've been zipping around. I'm going to talk. I just got back from my trip to California. That was a lot of fun. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on. But. Uh, um, Anyways, uh, uh, Farid, tell you so flight safety. Um, uh, you you were down there getting some training. What's what's that all about? Can you tell us? Well, for those of us in the professional ranks, it's a it's a it's a every six months. Um, luckily, now with the new medical rules, since I'm young enough still, I now only have to get my first class medical every year. But I do have to take uh, what it, it's akin to a uh, initial typewriter every six months. It's called recurrent training. So. In the CJ3, I have to, every six months I take a uh, check ride after a couple of days of training just to kind of refresh mm-hmm, some mm-hmm. all the emergency procedures. The uh, as there, a lot of people know, it's in a full motion simulator, and a lot of people the in, the engines never work; they're always failing, but they seem to be fixed awfully fast as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what's that like? I mean, how real? I don't know. May, I would maybe Jeb and Deb. I've certainly never flown in any of those full motion things. Jeb and Dave, have you flown in these full motion motions? Oh, oh simulators? yeah. Well, let, let me ask Fareed first. So, how real <laughs> is it? Well, it's 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 very real in the sense that they do create. The pressure of an emergency by uh, giving you multiple emergencies. So since they, since obviously your brain certainly shuts down some of the panic factor because they, you know, that you're only about ten feet off the ground in a box on uh, hydraulic stilts. They they give you multiple emergencies at once, and of course the fact that you're always you would never do this in real life where you take off and then you're immediately. Uh, 
you get an engine failure, and then uh, you immediately have to uh, go into another uh, instrument approach and then set up for another instrument approach and then another one, and that's what builds all the pressure of you making sure that you, you don't snap. And uh, so, I mean... It, it, it's it's kind of, here's here's the thing that some some most GA pilots can relate to, and that is you know we're used to in these airplanes having automatic pilot and a flight director, which basically you just have to keep follow the, the instructions right in front of you, and you can fly a perfect ILS. Well, I was doing one uh, a two engine ILS the other uh, in the simulator, and suddenly all of my uh, flight displays went blank. We just have uh, LCD screens, and I had to do a raw ILS. For for once, on what was the, the <laughs> what was the simu- uh, for what was the simulator simulating? What is, which aircraft? Yeah, the uh, Citation CJ three, okay, which has okay. w- which has uh, two PFDs or pilot flight displays mm. uh, for each pilot, and then a multifunction display. So you got three screens, mm. two steam gauges, ones for the uh, um, angle of attack gauge, and the others for the uh, oxygen quantity. And so mm. those are the only round dials in the whole aircraft, and the rest, the rest is uh, flight displays and multifunction displays, and you can move them around, but they failed it all over the place. So all I had was two uh, standby instruments, which were also CRTs, little small ones, but they were right, right. also CRTs as well. And so I had to fly a, a raw ILS uh, almost like I was back in my 172. <laughs> is, yeah. that the, is, that, is that the Honeywell panel in that? It is the Collins Proline 21. It's a Collins, okay. Yeah. I was and trying to remember when they changed over. And... and it was an easy transition for me because in my 172, I've got the Garmin 396. And so I've got the, as, as everybody knows, got the XM. And so right. to go into this one, now they have the electronic charts, which you pull up right on the multifunction display, the Jeppesen. And then, of course, it has XM weather, which it overlays. And you'll love this. They have on the electronic charts... Um, they have a little pink airplane that flies over the uh, Jeppesen chart, so it's like a moving map on your Jeppesen chart. Oh yeah, beautiful. yeah, fabulous. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I'm, so here's what I'm curious about, and, and you know, this is like not serious at all. But yeah, how often do you actually crash? Um, it's very oh, uh, rare. Really? Okay. I mean, because they break off before you get that bad, or, or no, no, you can crash in that thing. Or you're just an excellent pilot and you never crash. Well, you get to a certain point where you can it's it's amazing what you can say, but I do if I go back to when I got typed in the King Air 350 and we're talking it's got about a uh, 1070 shaft horsepower aside and they you do a a uh, engine failure past V1 or the point of no return and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of yaw yeah there. And I the first about 3 or 4 V1 attempts um I I crashed. <laughs> and and then, then your heading is such that you're that you you veer way off like uh, early students who don't track the center line on the upwind when they take off. It's mm-hmm. what you're supposed to do is about a five. You're not supposed to vary more than five degrees of heading when you lose that engine. Now with the jets, it's center line thrust pretty much because they're hugging the fuselage, and so it's pretty easy to to hold that. But th- you do get a kick. There is some yaw uh-huh. to yeah, it, and that's usually there's, where they crash. There, there's there's some yaw there, but. Boy, it's nothing like what you're talking about with a King Air or, uh, oh, no. you know, another jet yeah. like the big Embraer. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't have uh, it doesn't have fuselage mounted engines. They're out on the wings like a 737 or 57 or 67 or. I can imagine those Q400, that Q400, that that high speed big turboprop, the Horizon mm-hmm. Airflies. That's that's got to just be crazy. Yeah. 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 Well, the n- nice thing about that is that's a de Havilland. <laughs> 
And de Havilland never built an airplane that was uh, uh, deficient in control authority. Uh, and, you know, that whole airplane is designed around bush operations, uh, and it's turned into an urban inter- interurban commuter airplane, and it's really good at it. But if you take a look at the size of the control surfaces, the vertical and the horizontal tail on that airplane, it is huge. Uh, not that the yaw ain't there. It's there like you're talking about, and particularly with those big PW100 engines on, 100 series engines. But it's got so much rudder, uh, it just powers itself right out of it. But why would you worry about that? That's what the first officer's for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in a CJ3, you guys fly crew of two, right? We're we're a crew of two always, and uh, seven in the back, seven passengers in the back, and we've got a range about 1,800 miles. Um, up to 45,000 feet. It goes right up there. It doesn't go very fast. It's only 0.73 Mach. So it's, it's, you're kind of in the way of people if you're on a, if you're on a heavy but, highway up there. But you're burning how much an hour? Oh, boy. Uh, you mean I, I don't – you want me to look at the engine gauges then? <laughs> Somebody's got to do some fuel planning here for it. We're down That's to about – That's what the flight, dir- flight director is for. About, uh, we're down to about uh, – I'd say about 400 aside. It's it's pretty it, 400 to 600 aside. Gallons or pound? Gallons. Pounds, pounds aside. Pounds right. aside. Okay. Yeah. And uh, don't ask me to convert it to gallons. That's making me think too hard. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. I can tell you how much it is in scotch. Yeah. <laughs> one one G whiz thing about the simulator uh, is that um, it if you sit up front, you th- you lose yourself right away. You forget that you're flying, and or that you're in a, a box that's just off the ground, and you lose yourself in this scenario. And I've 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 had a couple tense moments with training partners, but if you were to sit in the back where the instructor is, the way that they simulate some of the acceleration is the the box actually tips back, and so if you're in the right. back, you get this weird sensation. But that's how they do the acceleration, and also the box rises up. And that's how they, you know, that's one of the gee whiz things. The other is the way these new simulators are. They, they have like a, bu- uh, a wraparound screen and they play jokes on them where people go out and walk on the outside and they hide down below the window. Oh, no. In, in opportune movement, they just jump up and go, boo! <laughs> that's just mean. That is just mean. <laughs> Especially if you're at uh, 5,000 feet doing steep turns and you see this head pop up on the window. It's like that uh, cartoon of that kid. I, hold I, I, I yeah. guarantee if it happens to you in real life, nobody you report it to will believe you. But I will tell you this story. I, I, I made an, uh, an infamous uh, imprint on my new company, and that is the first time in the airplane, the actual airplane, we're leaving White Plains. We're taxiing out, and it's raining. Um, it's maybe about uh, 60 degrees, and it's uh, low overcast. And we taxi out, and I'm flying, and uh, – they give us a warning about birds before we take off, and we blast down the runway, rotate, and all of a sudden, here come the birds, and I nailed one right in front of me. Right in front of me. I sit on the right side, and it hit right on the wind window, and there's you know, uh, red red goo all over the place. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. So my first flight was an inauspicious point four in the block, probably like <laughs> point <laughs> Yep. And the, and the airplane sat for about a week because we uh, – uh, it damaged the uh, what's called the um, the rain door on on the airplane, which is a little flap just above the windshield that di- diverts rain away from the uh, the window. Instead of wipers, that's how they divert rain away. And also, uh, we just kind of wondered whether some of the bird parts went in the engine. 
And so, uh, oh yeah, you definitely want to borescope that puppy and look for gizzards, feathers, yeah. uh, Colonel Sanders signs. Yeah, right, uh, right. Yeah. Nuggets, man, nuggets. Nuggets. But the good, the good thing about the CJ three is that it's a straight wing jet, and it's real. It's a, it's real easy to fly. But coming from a swept wing airplane where you have a tiller, there are two distinct challenges because of uh, your your uh, angle of attack as you're landing, and also. Uh, how you how you steer on the ground because that that citation Cessna citation gear is not the best. It's single wheel and brakes are not the best. Yeah, and yeah. It's real difficult. Yeah. Hey, moving on here. Um, one of the drink. things we're as I mentioned earlier, we're recording this episode on uh, Thursday evening, uh, September 11th. One of the things that's going on in the world right now is uh, out on the West Coast or near the West Coast, the uh, Reno National Air Races are going on, and uh, we're going to talk about that for a little bit. Um, some of the fun stuff that goes on out there. Um, but let me start on a, on a little bit more somber note to uh, to remember uh, that uh, the fact that uh, there's already been one fatality out there this year. Um, reading from a story uh, off the web, I believe from uh, let's see the website I'm looking at is examiner.com. Uh, Formula One racer Erica Simpson, 32, of Phillipsburg, New Jersey, was preparing for her second year as a competitor uh, in the event when her aircraft crashed at Reno State Airport, airport and she was killed. Um, uh, always a very very sad thing. Uh, and uh, Farid, I I believe you have a connection to this woman. Uh, you're you're not not direct coworkers, but you both fly for that same company. Is that how what the situation that, is? That is correct. Uh, she is a cap. She's a captain in the the X, the Citation XL fleet, and um, she she was a uh, um, uh, she kind of was tied to Oshkosh in that she was part of the Air Venture Cup race. And so she was a uh, associate of Eric White, who was also uh, flies for the company I, I fly for. And uh, she was in a Cassid racer. Um, she was doing proving runs, and she had to do a role to kind of demonstrate the uh, the um, uh, integrity of the airplane, yeah. uh, as it were. And they had a Czech pilot flying behind and watching. And somehow there was a either a flutter in the tail or something, but it, it made it pitch up violently. And so it it had a flat plate um, profile in the relative wind, and that's when the Holy wings. Holy cow! That's a hell of a pitch up. Yes, and and this this is of course this this is information I'm getting fed from uh, my friend who's close to the situation. So it certainly is not the uh, preliminary cause by the NTSB, but certainly that's what some of the talk is coming out of there that that's what happened. Yeah, very very that's sad. Just, and, uh, go ahead, Dave. I was just going to say the the cassette is a well proven. Uh, you know, long time uh, uh, hobby racer design. It's got a great history, all in all. Uh, that you know, in the reading about this accident, it really saddened me about the young lady. Uh, I mean, it always said anybody a pilot, uh, you know, has one they don't come back from, and and particularly in something as public as Reno. But uh, uh, you know, I was stunned to hear about this, you know, being a cassette because. Uh, they've just got such a great reputation of being a really strong, durable, cheap little racer. Uh, but yeah, from this what particular you described, airplane, boy, that yeah. would that would overload anything. Yeah, it was a negative G kind of thing that that you know, and uh, certainly aerobatic airplanes and some racing airplanes can take a certain amount of negative Gs, but that probably was definitely exceeds. Your negative G tolerance is going to be a lot less than your positive G tolerance on just about any airplane, and and so therefore. It, it, it's it's understandable how that airplane would have failed. Uh, Erica 
uh, I don't know how often she had flown this particular Cassett, and it's got a kind of a checkered history to it, which will come out in, in the investigation. I don't want to speak any more to it, but um, it certainly, certainly wasn't one her normal airplane. She owns a Pitts um, herself, and uh, it's, that's usually what she flies. And um, but uh, this one, she, she was flying someone else's airplane, and they'll probably be looking into the maintenance history and whether they trailered it out there or if it was flown out there and they put it back together and that's that's when it happened or what. Yeah, yeah. Well, our, our thoughts and prayers and uh, go out to her family and friends. It's a very, very sad thing as always. And, uh, you know, we wish them all well. Um, on a little more positive note, though, the Reno Air Races, I've spoken about this on the podcast before about my the few times I've attended and how, how thrilling an event it, it actually is. Um, took me a little bit by surprise. Um, have, have any of the three of you been to the Reno Air Races? It's high on my ambition list, yeah. but as yet unfulfilled. Yeah. Certainly no, not me. Really? So I'm cool. So I'm the expert here when it comes to the Reno Air Races. Yeah, yes, we you bow are. to you, Jack. Yeah, yeah. It's really terrific. It's uh, it's oh. it's actually it's at an airport called Reno Stead, which is uh, actually north of uh, of Reno proper, um, out in the desert. Uh, it's a great big huge bowl um, surrounded by mountains in the in the desert. Um, a relatively shallow bowl, but big, really big. And uh, and sort of at one edge uh, of the bowl is the airport, and they have a huge grandstand facing out onto the to the main runway, and uh, and the airplanes basically the sort of the main straightaway is right in front of you along this runway, and they they typically fly uh, uh, counterclockwise left turns. And uh, and depending on the size of the aircraft, because they fly everything from from small biplanes to these huge unlimited racers, depending on the size of the airplane, it, is, it determines the size of the circle. And the the big ones fly this as big a circle as they can in this big uh, bowl of desert. And uh, I'm telling you, I, it's just, the first time I went. I hadn't gone for years. I was living in California. It was when I started flying, and I'd heard about this thing. And I thought, well, I, I'm not sure if that's something that would really interest me. Um, because it's just airplanes going fast. I mean, that's I suppose that's interesting, but so. But one year I happened to go, uh, just to figure I'll go check this out, and I'm telling you, it is thrilling. All right, These airplanes are right in front of you, going really fast, really close together, really close to the ground, and uh, passing each other and maneuvering, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's really quite an event, and uh, I enjoyed it. I went two or three times while I was out there before moving back east. And, uh, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting time for the race, Though, because they've had a, uh, at least about averaging maybe one or two fatalities a year for the past four or five years. At the same time, you know, if you add in the Red Bull racing, this type of watching racing up close has really caught on with the public, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. That's what they've been trying to do for years. A lot of people thought that that this would help uh, uh, aviation. That would help get people interested in flying in in a in similar to the way that NASCAR and, and automobile racing gets people interested in cars. Um, you know, you get a lot of sponsorship from from you know, from car companies sponsoring race cars, you would get sponsorship from airplane companies sponsoring these race planes, and uh, they added a sport class a few years back, so they actually had Lanceres and those kinds of things, sort of stock, if you will, quote-unquote, Lanceres flying in the races, and uh, um, yeah, it does seem to be growing. It certainly is great. If you're ever in that area, you should check it out. Um, let me try and do something here. It's hey there. Is this Mad Max? Mad Max, this is Jack Hodgson calling from the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast. How you doing? How are things in uh, Cyberland? <laughs> They're doing very well. Um, we're, uh, we wanted to welcome you into the hangar. I'm glad you had a chance to join us. Uh, also in the hangar, of course, is Jeb and Dave and uh, Farid Gio from EAA Radio. So uh, so where, yes. where have we reached you? Where are you right now? 
I'm actually standing uh, right under the departure end. I think it's a runway 22. You have to look that up at uh, Reno Stead Airport. Yep. Uh, cool. It's the day of the uh, uh, national championship air races. So we come out every few years to uh, catch up with some old friends, some friends that we've raced with before, and uh, watch the events and uh, basically have some cocktails. That's great. So I, uh, before we got you on the phone, I gave uh, sort of my brief description of the, the setup and the layout there. But how would you describe you know, what, what you're seeing out there and what people see when they attend the races? Well, it's kind of interesting because uh, it's evolved a lot over the years. This is the 45th year they've been doing this, which I, I thought was phenomenal. Um, and as, as it stands right now, you've got uh, a couple new classes that have been entered into the, uh, to the race program, so to speak. So there's a little bit less of an air show like you would see going to you know, your local airport air show or any of the big ones like Oshkosh and what have you. So uh, it, there's a lot more racing going on. Um, the the tarmac area or, or the, the ramp area, I guess, between the main runway, the, the 224 runway, uh, has got bleachers and grandstands going up about 40 rows. Um, so, I mean, it's pretty amazing to, to take a look and, and see that you're, you're 30, 40 feet off the ground uh, looking eye level at these airplanes as they're racing around it. Uh, well, the top speed reached today was 405 miles an hour. Wow. Um, yeah. Oh, and that was uh, in the jet class. There's a P-51 that just took off. So uh, the racing jump of the day, there's guys doing engine checks. They had some May days today where people scratched out of the actual uh, heats they were running. But uh, fortunately, it was a safe day all the way around. Yeah. Um, before we go on, I, I, I've, I should have introduced you a little bit better. Mad Max is, uh, is, a, is a listener of the podcast, and we appreciate that. Um, we also appreciate the fact that he's one of the regular contributors to our forums area, and uh, that's how I discovered that he was going to be out there at Reno. He made a posting there that uh, talking about his trip, and, and so I sent him an email, and we talked back and forth a little bit and discovered that he was available um, at this time. So it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon, more give or take, out there right now. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's probably a quarter after they're about on September 11th. Yeah, and um, have, have the formal racing has the racing begun yet, or are they still in preliminaries? Where are we in the? It's a week long event, is that right? Oh, it actually started. The whole event is pretty much a week long. The first couple of days are um, they're, not, they're not tickets sold, and, and attendance is very low. But it's all heat racing uh, to set up for the three categories in each particular class. Uh, gold, bronze, and silver. And the idea being that um, when the whole thing said and done on Sunday, when they actually had the final races in each division, the uh, the speeds have been paired out enough so that uh, you're as closely as you can, you know, racing apples to apples as far as speed is concerned for the actual equipment. Um, that becomes important because the, the the way that I understand it, and, and if somebody uh, it can correct me on this, but the way that I understand it is that the first place finisher, for example, in the bronze level, um, walks away with less prize money than the last place finisher in the silver uh, category. The idea being that you always want to strive at least for the purse, you know, for the money-wise, to uh, to do your best. So there's a lot less sandbagging in this particular type of air racing than mm-hmm. you get, say, in, in some of the other events. Yeah. So what? Um, so again, so the, you're still doing you're doing heat races now, and you're building up for the uh, sort of big finish over the weekend. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And that's and that's it's the biggest day here today. Uh, the stands are probably 25 or 30 percent filled. Um, Saturday and Sunday, you know, standing room only, and you won't even be able to get through the pits without uh, stepping on people. Yeah, what's that we hear? We're hearing is that an airplane flying by? 
you're more likely this time of day to hear a golf cart whizzing by. Than- <laughs> <laughs> it's a souped-up golf cart. Huh? <laughs> yeah. That's down right here. <laughs> uh-huh. So um, w- anything uh, you know, particularly notable about the event so far this year? You mentioned uh, 400 miles an hour. Uh, are, are there any new planes or any planes that have returned or you know that kind of thing? Well, it's interesting because uh, the ones that qualify in the Unlimited, the Unlimited is what gets the most press and attention, um, which is the uh, the P-51s and the, and the F-4s and all the uh, the 1940s and 50s vintage uh, fighter planes from all around the world that have been maintained, in some cases modified. Uh, the guys like Rare Bear and uh, Strega, the, the the real big names, so to speak, in the sport don't race because they qualified so high that they won't come down to the field until the weekend, so to speak. Um, the T6 class is always a lot of fun to watch. Uh, you know, there's a second year now, I guess, where um, some, of, some of the newer names are up in, in the running. Uh, some of the older folks have stopped racing for various various reasons. Uh, my personal favorite is coming out here to watch the uh, the sport class run. The sports class is the sport class rather is the uh, the home build aircraft, the Glassairs, the Lancers, uh, you know, the swear engines. These guys who built their own damn airplanes and now they're racing them, and these guys are cranking them out, you know, 400 miles an hour close to it. Anyway, two things that the uh, high tier in the, in the mid 200s, something like that. That's great. So, what what is your connect? Do you have a connection here beyond being just a, an attendee and a fan? Uh, yeah, my wife and I actually race. Uh, we don't do this the pylon racing, but we do a lot of cross country air racing, uh, the U.S. air race, the national air races, um, and we're part of the uh, Sport Air Racing League, which is a group run out of Texas that does a, a series of three hundred mile races. Uh, if you go to uh, airracecentral.com, dot uh, com, that goes over to the Sport Air Race League. Uh, Sport, Sport Air Race League. Uh, so, and that stuff is fun because that's broken down to the point where. Um, a Cessna 172 or 152 will legitimately be racing in these events, but it will be an apples-to-apples. We'll be racing against other factory class in the same horsepower and speed category. And by the time you're done doing a 300-mile race or a 200-mile race, you know, you may have 15 winners in 15 different classes, but you really exercise the aircraft and, and the, the type of uh, skill level that you get to perfect uh, being a cross-country air racing makes you a better pilot all the way around. Yeah, yeah. You People aren't doing it. Yeah, that's what. Well, uh, Dave and I were trying to hook up to do the uh, Wichita race a couple weeks back. Um, that's that's right. That's right. Max, yeah. uh, Max uh, sent me a private message uh, asking if I'd be interested in being the uh, observer seat occupant when he came out. Uh, oh, I think uh, you mentioned this. Yeah, to fly in the Air Capital 200. Uh huh. And uh, unfortunately, that was kind of a window where I had to be out of town. Uh, coincidentally, I got invited by the race organizers. They were uh, at one point short of people to sit right seat with the racers. So they invited several friends of mine and myself out to do it. And one of my friends went. Uh, he wound up not getting to sit in a racer. But he got all the the VIP privileges that came with being a racer just to save. So he had a good time. And I guess Max, uh, uh, because of some weather, had to cancel out. Yeah, and, and what happens is, is that particular community of cross-country racers, um, there's about a half dozen or so that uh, are actually also in the pylon racing field. And, and we come out here and, and catch up with them. Unfortunately, two of those guys that were friends with 888 today, one had a governor overrun. And I think the other one had an oil problem. Uh, so they just bailed out of this heat. They'll be able to race if they can fix the problem. But, you know, it's never fun to see that happen. But it's even a lot less fun if they have a bigger problem. Right, right. Max, can I ask you, uh, uh, what are some of the uh, 
innovations as far as uh, mods for uh, reducing uh, speed and and or actually, I should say increasing speed, reducing drag that you've seen since you're moseying around the pits this week? The, the most common ones to pick up on, um, you can take a look at some of the modified P51s like uh, Voodoo and Strega, the Race 7, and uh, um, I think it's a, a Race 99, I'm not positive. Yeah. The, you take a look at these, and there's not so much of the rivet head sticking out anymore. Everything has been, uh, been uh, replaced with flush head rivets, and, and the cockpits have been chopped down. Uh, Voodoo, for example, um, and Strega, you'd have a hard time identifying as a P51D. If it wasn't for the belly scoop on the bottom, you'd never even know that's what it was. Uh, another thing that happens a lot is you see these guys on the, on the big iron will clip the wings. Um, you know, I, I don't know off the top of my head what the wingspan is on, on say, a, uh, uh, a P51, but you know they've taken two, three, four feet off of each side. So it's basically this gigantic lawn dart with a fan out front. But boy, they're fast. Uh, the other thing they've done in the last, they brought it back in the last couple of years is the actual, the jet class racing. So they're racing L29s and L39s and, uh, the Fuga jets and things like that, which initially <laughs> kind of got off to a slow start out here in Reno. But, uh, the way it's turned out in, in the long run, it's been just not so black to see these guys screaming around. And, and those were the numbers I was quoting earlier. They, they, I think the top speed on one of their laps today was 415, 414.6 miles an hour. You know, I, I don't know if that is a knot because, you know, I only work in knot, so I can't do the, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. But, uh, for whatever reason, you know, and I guess this is the other thing that's different from Oshkosh because you come out here. Is that, I bet you that on the weekend, you may only have 20% of the people here, maybe 25% of the people here as spectators that are actually pilots. Everybody else is just a race fan. You go to Oshkosh or, or Lakeland or any of these other events, and the number's almost exactly the opposite. You've got 25% of the people who are, are not aviators in one form or another. So it's interesting listening to some of the conversations, for sure. But it, it's, it's kind of neat because you're seeing that, you know, that seven-year-old kid at the fence at the airport you know, with their eyes wide open. And that's kind of neat to see. Yeah. Um, well, we, we know an awful lot about uh, Mad Max uh, from his writing in the forums. Um, he tells us tells a lot of great stories and, and gives a lot of great advice. But he has asked that we just go by his uh, forum handle here today. But, but Mad Max, could you t- share with us um, where you're from and what kind of flying you do during the rest of the year? Well, um, my wife and I have a Mooney, which we raised. We, we already discussed that. And I'm based out of uh, out of uh, Morristown, New Jersey. Mike, Mike, uniform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I am a Learjet pilot. Um, I, the, the company I was flying for uh, went out of business, and now I'm back to being retired. Uh, being retired military is kind of a nice thing because I can work when I want or if I want. Um, and right now I'm into the I don't want. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You guys, any of you guys have any other questions for Max before we let him go back and watch the airplanes? You need need somebody to carry bags or bend wrenches for you or anything like that? <laughs> well, you know, the other thing I said to, to uh, Jeb in one of the emails is that, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, to uh, Jack, is that Jeb and I actually have mutual friends, and Dave and I have mutual friends as well. Uh-huh. Um, frequently in aviation, when you get a job professionally, you know, everybody goes, it's who you know, it's who you know. And it's like, no, exactly. that's not true. It's who knows you. Who wants to sit next to you for a seven-day trip? And that's really what it boils down to. So, uh, you know, uh, tough one to load everybody. And, uh, you know, our friends, that we have mutual friends, know who they are. So we'll, we'll leave it at that for now. Yeah, yeah. Max, before we let you go, is there anything else uh, I should have asked you about uh, Reno? Anything uh, that, uh, that that's particularly notable this year? Uh, not, not this year so much, other than uh, the Thunderbirds are here. And 
Um, like I said, I'm a retired military, and, and I'm, I'm from one of the seagoing services. So watching the, the flying chickens really isn't for me. And holy crap, these guys take forever. So if they get <laughs> killed by about like 60%, I'd be a happier guy. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you, Mad Max, for taking a few minutes. Uh, to We're really jealous that we hear what we believe are airplanes in the background, and we're going to stick with hey, that idea. That, yeah. that or you got some fairly cool golf carts out there. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So we appreciate it, and uh, we'll say hello again uh, in the forums and uh, to our listeners, anyone who wants to get more information about this. Uh, certainly you could talk to, to Max in, in the UCAP forums. I th- you think you said you're going to take some pictures and put them on Flickr? Yeah, I did. I, I'm, uh, I've got a Flickr account uh, set up, and I'm going to go ahead and upload those in about an hour. So by the time this comes out, okay. uh, they should be available, and I'll send you a link. Okay, or, or let me suggest that you just post a link in the forums area uh, so that people can find it there, and uh, we'll try and add it into the show notes, although we're notoriously bad at that kind of thing. But we'll do what we can. Hey, that's great. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, and thanks for all your participation in the forums. That's terrific as well. You bet, yeah. guys. I'll see you another time. Okay, take for care. Sure. Have fun. Well, Have fun, Mad Max. Very cool. Yeah, man. I, and I was just out there last week. I, I you know, after I made my plans for going, coming, you know, going out there and then returning, it was was when I suddenly suddenly realized that the Reno Air Races were the next week, and I'm kicking myself. I could have stayed another week and gone to the Reno Air Races, but I didn't. Anyways, so uh, yeah, the Reno Air Races. You got to go if you've never been. You got to go if you've been. You got to go. I can imagine that the the, the T six uh, heats you. You don't even have to see them. You can just listen. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's just the same from from wherever you are in Illinois, New Hampshire, yeah, Florida, yeah. or Wisconsin or uh, Kansas. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, if you buy the CD of the soundtrack of Reno, it does come with a bib. <laughs> yeah, <there you> go. <laughs> that's right. So let's see now. How do we follow that? Uh, Jeb, you posted. I think it was. I think Jeb is the one who posted this uh, uh, a link from a, a blog. A blog posting was an extensive story that included a visit to a restaurant that is a is what yeah. what Jeb. Well, I, I mean, let me pull it up here and and uh, refresh that. my memory because we posted. I, I posted this three or four weeks ago. Yeah, that's true. It's been sitting in the queue for a while, and uh, and that's quite a Saturday flight. I mean, that it, the way that he uh, wrote that story sounded like he did it in the morning, but I'd say that took all day. Yeah, yeah. It took all day to read it. That's for sure. It, well, and it, and it, it took him a long time to put it together, and and uh, uh, I, I think this was like maybe more than one day, or so, I don't know. But uh, one of the this is a uh, a blog post um, uh, on the blog Airborne Observations. Um, Shane Watts is the uh, the author of this. Um, I don't know much more about the blog than what I just told you. I came across it somewhere on a uh, um, uh, through some other means, I guess, for lack of a better term. But um, he flew into um, what's the name of the airport here? Greenwood Lake Airport, and I believe this is in uh, I want to say New Jersey. Uh, I look that up yeah. real quick here and, and, and confirm it. But he's he's taxiing in, and this looks like it's uh, maybe a cardinal or something like that. I can't really tell um, what kind of airplane he's flying. But um, he, he lands and taxis in, and there's a Lockheed Constellation sitting on the ramp. Now, this Constellation hasn't flown for a while, um, but it did fly into this uh, relatively short airstrip uh, uh, Greenwood Lake, uh, and it's kind of a checkered history. It uh, 
Um, it was originally brought in to uh, be converted uh, in, let's see, uh, 1976, the airplane was um, brought in uh, the, into a 2,700-foot runway. So right away, uh, there's something significant going on. But, yeah, really? uh, yeah, originally it was brought in as to serve as, as a restaurant, as part of a restaurant. Um, what a cool idea. It'd be a great idea. And uh, that restaurant apparently uh, went out of business, um, so it um, was turned into an office, and then it was used, simply used for storage, and um, it was a pilot shop at one point. Um, I've, I haven't read enough of this to really discern what kind of use it's being put to right now. But um, maybe we should turn that uh, into UCAP World Headquarters. Maybe we should turn this into World Cap. Uh, World Cap. Well, uh, the fact that it was an office was, yeah. you know, the the fact that it was an office is the uh, the fact the government will find the cheapest office space available to exactly. people. <laughs> well, well, it was, was, it was, you know? it was the airport uh, office, I take it. Huh? Yeah. But, <laughs> okay. Um, so it was a but, local city office, is what he said. Really, I didn't. Yeah, I had no idea there was a, a lucky constellation in New Jersey. Um, well, I guess there is. I guess there is. I guess there is. And, and I'll have to, next time I'm up in that neck yeah. of the woods, I'll, I'll have to pop in there just to get up close and personal. Yeah. I mentioned once before that, uh, uh, sorry, I'm hearing some hissing on my, but I guess I want to make sure nobody. That's, 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 that's just the, the crowd. That's the snake that we put in your room. Is that what it is? Okay. Uh, inspired by the new movie, Snakes on a Podcast. That's right. That's right. <laughs> So, uh, get these mother. <laughs> <laughs> what is with all the MF snakes on this MF podcast? Okay, MF. <laughs> well, speaking of which, so I want to give you a little trip report. We recorded last last week's episode um, on uh, on Sunday morning from uh, from Will Hawkins' uh, kitchen, uh, and I was in the midst of a just an incredibly pleasant visit to. Uh, to pilot Will and uh, his home. And yeah, his- man, we're really beginning to have suspicions about this whole, oh, it was a work trip. Thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. It was work trip. I'm going to deduct all of it. <laughs> it's my story, and I'm sticking to it. No, Yeah, uh, man, he comes back tanned more time in a logbook, and he gained five pounds. That's right. Well, all these things are true, but what can I say? Yeah, um, flying. After the uh, After we wrapped up the podcast, recording the podcast, uh, Will and I got our gear together, and we went on down to, uh, he lives in the in the sort of what we call the Santa Cruz Mountains, which are the hills uh, just up the, away from the ocean from uh, from Santa Cruz, California, uh, and we jumped in his car and drove down the hill and uh, drove up the or down the coast a little ways to uh, Watsonville uh, Airport, oh, yeah. which is where uh, Will keeps his airplane. Um, he has a really nice uh, uh, Arrow Three that he owns with the, his airplane partner Rico, and uh, uh, nice we, nice airplane. Yeah, it is. I've flown with another friend in his Arrow, so. I'm somewhat familiar with it, and and they are nice airplanes. Um, and uh, so we kind of got all our gear in the airplane. And uh, uh, interesting thing, uh, Will had actually wasn't sure he was going to be able to fly that airplane that day because um, he had 
decided to replace one of the main gear tires. And uh, he wasn't sure if it was going to be replaced in time. It did get replaced in time, but he hadn't had a chance to to hardly even taxi it, let alone fly or land it on the wheel. So before he let me get in the airplane, uh, he wanted to do uh, uh, three times around the pattern to kind of land on this tire a couple times. So uh, so he handed me a, the uh, his uh, his handheld, and I just kind of wandered around the ramp while he went and, and flew the pattern for a few times. And uh, and he really uh, didn't he he didn't want the other airplanes to know that his airplane was running around on new foot. Yeah, that's right, that's right. So he uh, that was fun. Uh, I have to tell you though that the, so the first time so he, he taxis out, you know, and 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 I'm watching very carefully for because I've as much as I know and like Will, uh, I've never flown with him, so you know who knows, right? And so I'm watching very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh, and so, we're a wise man. We yeah. are. And so I watch it's, him. Dude's kind of, you know, yeah, right. Right? yeah. So he, well, uh, he he got that way flying with Burnside. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, got to be careful. You never know. Um, but will I watched Will do takeoff? Everything was great. Careful. And I do know where you live. He climbed out. <laughs> he climbed out and, uh, and and turned a crosswind to downwind and then came around and did his first landing. And he just like put a greaser. I mean, he was just a great landing. Just just kissed it onto the ground. And I said, oh, okay, good. He does know how to fly, and I proceeded to turn that. and wandered around and, and looked at other airplanes while he finished his his uh, his uh, you know sort of maintenance check uh, uh, flights. But so um, he taxied back in, and I climbed on board, and we took off, and we flew uh, up out of uh, Watsonville over over Santa Cruz, and then up through the people who are familiar with the area will, will be familiar with this route. Um, we went through the uh, what's known as the Route 17 Pass, um, which goes through the the mountains um, over to uh, Silicon Valley or or Santa Clara Valley is what's actually known, and uh, and then we uh, talked to uh, NorCal Approach to work our way across the valley and landed at San Carlos Airport, where we met Jason Miller, uh, who we had planned who was going to meet up with us, and then uh, and then we all climbed back in the airplane. We were going to go to Half Moon Bay, which is out on the ocean, and there's a yeah, restaurant I was there. looking forward to hearing about that. Yeah, we were going to go there, but we realized when we were flying out of Watsonville that wasn't going to work because the, uh, the 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 marine layer of clouds had crept in, and uh, ah. Half Moon Bay was underneath the clouds so uh so we said well what can we do instead and we decided instead to go up to the north of san francisco bay to napa airport where there's a great legendary airport or a restaurant airport restaurant called jonesy's uh it's a steakhouse and uh, so we flew up there and uh, had a great uh, a great flight over over uh uh, not only over San Francisco, but right over the top of SFO, San Francisco International. Um, the, How cool! The the routing. Did you say a grape flight or a great flight? Well, yeah, you got the idea. It's Napa Valley, so. Uh, <laughs> if, if uh, I could, if I could drop something in quick about SFO, it's really cool. What they do is they have some uh, runways, parallel runways that go to the north, and the departure procedures they give to the airliners. Um, are to peel off uh, if you're on the left side to the left to the right side of the right. And they like to send them at the same time. So you see like a formation break about 500 feet up. These two 737s or two 747 break off. And that's to look for if you're around SFO, if they're taking off to the north. Yeah. Well, let me, really interesting. let me tell you a story about that. Um, so as I was saying, we heading northbound, heading to Napa, they had us at 1,500 feet. So we were like right over the airport. And uh, I got some great pictures, which I've posted on, on my Flickr uh, account. And uh, we went up over the city, got some great pictures of the city. Then we 
headed out right across. Uh, there's a big sort of almost circular part of San Francisco Bay, which I believe is called San Pablo Bay. Um, it's probably the biggest open body of water in San Francisco Bay. And we went right through, no no fear, we went straight across the middle of this thing at 1,500 feet. Um, and the engine still ran just fine, oddly enough. Um, you know, it's I, funny. They don't know where they are. Yeah, right. Uh, Pilots. Yeah. And that's the problem but the air the engines really don't know what they're flying yeah, over yeah. yeah so we arrived up at napa and uh, taxied in napa of course uh, one of the things notable about napa is that it's the location of one of the big uh training facilities for an asian airline that i'm blanking on the name of it now but uh i think we've talked about it in the past but uh um they had just a whole slew of uh, tr- of bonanzas for training um it's like i mean there must be I don't know, 20, 50, 30, 50 of them. There's a yeah, lot of them, so you know. Starting somewhere. Initio school. Yeah. So they're all lined up there. Uh, we had lunch at, uh, at Jonesy's, uh, and then we had we had to get Jason back because he, he had a flight. Uh, he had a, a, a student that he was going to be flying with. So we climbed back in the airplane and headed back out across San Pablo Bay. Um, this time what we did, uh, we were going to try and fly basically the same route, but we they wanted us to, they didn't want us down low this time. So we climbed up to 3,500. Again, went over the top of San Francisco, um, and we're approaching to go overhead over the top of uh, SFO again and they instructed us to turn right a little bit so that the now the airport's off to our left and uh, and the reason they did this was to give a little bit more spacing because they had a 747 taking off on this uh, on this uh, north I believe it's the north runway that Fareed was alluding to um, and the cool part is and this has happened to me once before years and years and years ago we're flying along at 3500 feet in our little arrow all right and the ATC instruction or advice we got was um, you know, maintain 3,500 feet. Fly this direct this heading because the 747 is restricted beneath you. All right, and because he had to level out to get underneath us, and so we got some great pictures of this of this 47 flying right underneath our wing, and uh, it's uh, better cool. above than below. And also, you're getting another experience. Oh, that's true. That's true. Oh yeah, yeah. So then we uh, went back on course. We flew back down, dropped off uh, San. It, Col- and that is so cool doing that. Yeah, it is cool. It is cool. Look, looking down on airliners is always fun. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, then we and so we dropped uh, Jason off at San Carlos and uh, and Will and I continued. We actually then turned out and we went out out to the coast. And although the uh, marine layer was still there, we were able to get a few glimpses of the of the shoreline. And it's just I've said it before. I'll say it again. It's just the prettiest flying you can imagine doing along the the Pacific coast like that. And uh, so we went cruising down there over over Santa Cruz, landed at Watsonville, and uh, and just it was just a terrific day. And uh, I want to publicly thank Will and Jason for for you know being my hosts. Uh, for this great day of flying, we had a blast. It was, it was and, a lot of fun. And, and, and Jonesy's, you can send the gift certificates to uh, Jack. He'll make sure the rest of us get them. That's right. Although I'm sure my little plug is they're they're very well known. It's uh, it's it's definitely one of the uh, the flyout food uh, destinations. Could always be paid off in Madeira. That's right. That's uh, right. The Victor Satui Winery there in Napa. They're That's Madeira. Right. So take that. So that was kind of cool, and uh, I'll, I'll try and put a link. I, my, they're in my Flickr account, um, the pictures I took, and uh, it was it's kind of a fun day. It's a picture of, of Will's plane and some shots from the air. And uh, uh, so, the application of SFO is is you know it's kind of uh, southwest of downtown San Francisco or southeast, I should say, downtown San Francisco. So you know, even look, you know, doing a pleasure flight and uh, over the city, it makes it much easier. You can kind of because it's away from all the uh, the the busy the yeah, busy yeah. Yeah. yeah, it never occurred to me. So you do you do you land at the SFO routinely, Fareed? Um, not I haven't with this company yet. For some reason, uh, I am uh, been stuck east of the Appalachians for just about every one of my tours, mm-hmm. and I would go up and down the East Coast, never going west. We joke that uh, 
that there is this great land west of the Appalachians. We're going to send two people out there to to find out what it is and report back to us about the great land west of the Appalachians. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and uh, they can tell us about it, Mr. Jefferson. But yeah, we, uh, there's a place called Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in in previous jobs, I have gone in the SFO a lot, and it's a uh, the bigger airports are really going to the RNAV uh, procedures, arrivals and departure procedures now, so that they don't have they have to do very little controlling. They just clear you for takeoff, fly the departure. And then uh, you know you check on with the departure procedure, and off you go. Now this is mostly for the for the larger aircraft, the um, the airliners, and of course the corporate aircraft. But I, it's going to be not too long now before the smaller aircraft will be having their own RNAV departure procedures. If you go yeah, IFR out in some of these it, places, it's coming. It's yeah. coming. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, of of what I would characterize as an unusual uh, procedure, um, I, I attended. Uh, this is not the part that's unusual. The, the cool part. I attended the the local EAA chapter uh, uh, last night uh, up here in in uh, at Rochester at Skyhaven Airport uh, EAA two twenty five, and uh, sort of now that I'm in this area, I wanted to get active in that chapter. And it turns out that a bunch of my friends from a chapter I belong to down in Hampton, New Hampshire, um, are active up there as well. So it was it was a chance to say hi to some old friends. Um, one of the interesting things I, I heard and learned while I was at the meeting is that uh, Pease, formerly Pease Air Force Base, now Pease International Trade Port or something like that, um, um, a, a big, a big G, one of these big GA airports um, that also has a military component because the Air National Guard flies out of there. Um, they apparently um, not only have the ability to do what they, I guess it's called GCA approaches, ground controlled, ground control approach, ground control approach. Not only have the ability to do this, but they really want pilots and to ask for this. They need the practice. They need, they need the practice. It, yeah, need to get yeah. it certified on the procedures. Yeah, and so uh, we were just talking about this at the meeting, and, uh, and one of the members had just gotten a tower tour over there, and this is one of the things he learned that uh, that uh, you know whether you need it for you know safety reasons or not, um, you can do it for practice, and it's kind of an interesting idea to uh, to try. Jeb, didn't you talk about? The you, you, the story you told us about when you had radio problems right. and you were trying right. to get on the ground and you considered I, I was, asking for this kind of thing. I was about to. I, actually, I already had asked for one at Dulles. I was. This was. And I. I think it was the last episode we talked about. I had a little avionics issue with, with an airplane and uh, um, the short. The the, the, the um, um, first thing I did was uh, missed approach. And um, at one point, I requested um, the ASR approach, airport surveillance radar approach, into Dulles, uh, whereupon I was informed that an approach had been decommissioned. Um, oops. It, oops. Um, and I was about to use the E-word mm-hmm. and uh, request, or no, I should say demand, um, the uh, GCA slash PAR approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, PAR is precision approach radar. Yep. Uh, demand the GCA slash PAR into uh, Andrews, and I was going to have to declare an emergency to get into Andrews, but that was that was Plan A at that point. Right. Um, I have done those before. I, I uh, used to be uh, a member of the Aero Club at Andrews, and as part of uh, some instrument work I was doing at the time, uh, was flying in and out of there and. Uh, uh, requested on, on I want to say more than one occasion 
uh, the PAR into Andrews. I've also done ASRs into Dulles and, and some of the other larger airports. But uh, Now, how does this uh, work? I mean, do they say fly lower, fly higher, fly right, fly Well, they, they basically say, um, you know, um, they vector you around to the, the final approach course a certain distance out. It's, it's very similar to flying an ILS, mm-hmm. except um, you're depending on the controller for your left-right guidance and your vertical guidance instead of onboard instrumentation. So they'll vector you basically into a funnel, uh, and uh, they'll do it far enough out that you'll have ample opportunity to correct for wind. And uh, as you just, they'll they'll say, all right, you know, begin a, you know, four, five, six hundred foot per minute descent. You have to know how to fly the airplane. but that's really all you need to do is fly the airplane and, and follow instructions. They'll start tell turn, you, stop turn, start, and all that. Exactly. They'll, no. they'll, ask, they'll say, you know, all right, do not acknowledge uh, my transmissions any further. Uh, turn left, turn right, stop turn, uh, whatever, and, uh, you know, continue descent. They'll tell you how you're trending, slightly high, slightly low, slightly left, slightly right. And you're expected to, to correct based on that information. Um at the appropriate altitude, they'll say, uh, you're at the missed approach point, land the airplane. And hopefully by that time, of course, you can see the runway. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it, it, yeah it's, it's what uh, – and they, 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 you either do ha- standard rate or half standard rate, and they'll mm-hmm. ask you to do that. And you That's have right. to – Is the radar that they use um, accurate enough to determine your altitude, or do they depend on you d- telling them how – well, the, 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 the GCA, well, the GCA approaches and the PAR approaches are um, three-dimensional, as I recall. The ASR approaches, uh, airport surveillance radar, which are still in place in a lot of TRACONs uh, around the country, the ASR approaches are, are basically considered a non-precision approach. But the GCA and PAR approaches are three-dimensional giving you that that uh, precision element that you would have like on an ILS. Then any given Saturday you'll hear the controllers uh selling ASR and PAR approaches like the, uh, they're hawking hot dogs at a baseball game <laughs> certification going. It's just just like pilots have to have three bangs and goes in 90 days, controllers have to have some minimum level of proficiency on those approaches uh also. How how would one know whether a facility is equipped for you to ask for such a thing. You pull up uh, your trusty air, airport facilities directory. It, it is listed AFD, in there. AFD, baby. Yeah. AFD, okay. which not, not coincidentally is also now available free for the download. Uh-huh. It's a 30-something megabyte PDF file, but it's available free for the download. Uh, I should say they are available free for the download. There's seven... Uh, of them for different regions of the country, and they're all available free for the download. I'll say it again, from the FAA's National Aviation or National Aeronautical Charting Office website, NACO, N-A-C-O, dot F-A-A, dot gov. That's right. That's right. That's where you're getting your charts for your... Uh for that's your, where I get your the, handheld there. That's where I get the approach plates for the uh, the little uh, electronic flight bag uh, project, and uh, you can order... 
um, electronic versions of these charts. You can order paper versions of, of all these charts from that website. It's, um, it's, it's really, uh, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, it's quite the success story for the FAA. They, they, they did this right, and whoever's in charge of that and whoever dreamed all this up, uh, I, they get my vote for the next administrator. Yeah. Cool. If the uh, airport has an ASR-9 radar, then it can do ASR uh-huh. approaches and anything like that. And that's, that actually is kind of starting to be old technology. And, it is, uh, yeah. yeah. What about ASR-11s? They don't, they don't allow uh, – they don't do um, – Probably ASR- I don't think I don't think it's capable. I think is you're that- probably right because that's, that's also the air radar. We talked about this also I think last week. That's also the radar system that uh, did away with um, uh, TIS, tra- Traffic right. Information System. Yeah. Right, Service. which is you know coincidentally they're now starting to deliver via what else ADSB. Ah uh, yes, well let's not get into that. That's a big subject. We'll come back to that. We always well, do come back. And 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 we should note uh, that today, the, the day we're recording this, the general um, U.S. general is it general accounting. I forget they changed the name. Government General Accountability Account- Office. Thank you, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, came came out with a forty some odd page report on the status of next gen and ADSB and and all that kind of stuff and uh, uh, I haven't had a chance to plow through it yet but yeah. uh, it's out don't worry about it folks there'll be plenty of copies because it will not sell out at at the bookstore well it it, it too is available free for the download so. that's right yeah Hey, one last thing I wanted to mention um, is uh, again from my visit to the EA chapter. Um, the the sort of featured thing at the uh, at that particular meeting was that they played a video uh, of a, a forum from Oshkosh this summer. Um, actually, um, it was a talk given by a guy named who I'd never heard of before. But but um, Dave, I believe he's a, a colleague of yours, um, Barnaby uh, Wayne fan. Uh, Barnaby Wayne fan. Yeah, sure we know a, Barnaby. He's a columnist for Kit Planes, apparently. Um, and uh, in this video, I uh, gave. A, a, just an intriguing talk about drag reduction on your airplane, um, hmm. a, a subject that could be, and in fact did occasionally become quite technical, um, but nevertheless he made it very, very interesting and and you know useful to the average person. Uh, it's astounding the the things that cause drag on your everyday, average everyday airplane. I mean, there's just you, you'd be you, you listen to this talk and you're kind of amazed the thing flies at all. I mean, it's just amazing. Oh, it's vast and extensive and amazing. I mean, you know, we've talked about this before in the podcast, like, well, maybe not in detail, but book numbers, particularly old CAR-3 airplanes. That was the certification standard prior to FAR-23. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, I know for, from talking to a guy that was with Piper at Lockhaven, PA, back in the 50s, for example, that the... Uh, the book numbers developed for the old Piper Comanche, yep. my, one of my favorites, were developed absent what would be considered necessary accessories today, like radio antenna and uh, anti-collision beacons. Uh, and amazingly, all those little bitty things add up to a lot of drag. Uh, they, oh, yeah. they apparently do. That's one of the things he kept talking about in this, is just talking about all the different things on your average everyday airplane. One of his pet peeves is the uh, the outside air temperature probe that 
that on many airplanes pokes up um, through the top of the wind the wind oh windshield. yeah that's horrible up there and that's and 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 not only is that just an ugly you know piece of drag anywhere you'd put it on the airplane but apparently that particular spot is absolutely the worst spot you could put yeah. it in. it's a very high pressure area yeah. and the higher the pressure uh, exerted by the by the slipstream the greater the drag from any protuberance yeah. um yeah, absolutely. But he talked about just all these things. He talked about uh, uh, you know wheel fairings and not just wheel fairings. He said actually, what's more important than wheel fairings is the uh, putting a fairing on the actual strut or the you know yeah. whatever whatever leg goes down to the uh, and, and and not so much the wheel fairing itself also, but how the strut and the wheel f- pant. Right. Are are mated. Yes, and, and exactly. Why they flow together? Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. He talked about all those kinds of, of joints uh, between uh, like wings and fuselage, and um, you know, and and a lot of it is you know things that that are pretty much designed at the you know when the aircraft is designed and manufactured. But a lot of other things were things that that you could improve on your average everyday airplane. You know, by just uh, cleaning up, uh, you know, uh, rows of rivets and and uh, uh, you know moving the OA teeth probe and things like that. It was a really interesting talk, and I. I was I was would, kind of astounded would, at how much there is believe, there. Would you believe just keeping the leading edge and the forward 25-30% of the wing completely bug-free yeah. and nicely waxed yeah. can be two to three knots? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting we, we, subject. I, uh, I wish well, that this video were available. Um, I, I, the video that we saw was a private video that that our that our chapter president uh, took, and then he got permission from Barnaby to to play it at our chapter. And uh, there's there's two ways that you can get a hold of that. Uh, yeah. The video, but um, one there is a fellow who records all the forums at Air Venture. Yes. Not affiliated with EAA. You can order a copy from him, but also. Uh, EAA Radio did have Barnaby on our air, oh. and this week I've been uh, pulling together all the interviews for for the entire week, and uh, hopefully within the next week or so, our entire archives for this this year will be posted on the web, and including Barnaby's interview with our folks. So at least it, we it won't be the presentation, but it certainly have some insights. That's great. That's great. You well, can also dig. I'm sorry, Dave. Go ahead. I was just going to say it's always kind of tickled me that so many people would be little. Uh, the effectiveness of uh, the speed mods that are available for different airplanes. Little simple things like gap seals and and wing root fairings uh, that really seem innocuous on their face until you start compounding them right right i've always been a big I fan tried, baby yeah i've always been a big fan of these uh like the the uh, uh replacement cowlings that you can get what's the i'm blanking on the guy's name who was so awesome low, low presti low presti who's low passed presti, away now yeah. but uh but who who in my mind anyway well, his pioneered. company goes on his yes. company goes on and and he kind of pioneered this whole subject of creating new cowlings for everyday aircraft that uh that that basically are more streamlined that let in enough air to cool the engine but no more than was necessary and, well, and, and right cooling drag can be really significant any builder of any vans aircraft knows from dealing with vans and the assembly manual that one of the big places you got to get all the assembly right is in the cowl and the baffles and the interface between the upper the high pressure end and the low pressure end because the cooling drag alone can cost you multiple knots that's right 
Yeah. And the Hi, old stuff that they designed in the 40s and 50s was like fins on 40s and 50s automobiles. It looked good. It looked sexy. It looked racy. But in terms of effectiveness, it was negative. Yeah. Another one of his pet peeves was the uh, the uh, stereotypical red beacon that you often see on top of the uh, the you know uh, the, the tail, basically. Um, and he said that uh, wind tunnel tests and calculations have shown that that beacon all by itself produces more drag than the entire tail section. All right. Wow. So when I bash my beacon wow. on the uh, hangar door, I should have just. Uh, not repaired it. Yeah, apparently, or you know, you know, oops, I knocked off the beacon. Oh well, I guess I'll have to do without it. But uh, a fascinating stuff. And uh, um, check out that EA Radio uh, archive. Um, I would imagine that you can track him down through his uh, his Kit Planes columns. I w- he mentioned, or our, our chapter president mentioned that he was planning, or Kit Planes is planning to collect up all these columns into a book, which would be kind of interesting too. So uh, I, I just found it all pretty fascinating. And uh, well, and, and for folks who might go looking for it, Barnaby column in kit planes all these years and it's been many many years is called wind tunnel mm-hmm. there you go there you go uh let's see now we gotta try and wrap this thing up here we've been having way too much fun uh, uh farid what's the story uh, you have an aviation story related to an old high school friend what happened well my uh high school buddy of mine that we i've known since preschool uh uh after our junior year in the summer, we started in June of 1990. Within about a week of each other, we started flight training at the, the Madison Airport, uh, MSN, Madison, Wisconsin. Uh-huh. And uh, we, uh, we lit off, and we had lots of great momentum. And uh, he was ahead of me by about a week through solo. And he got up to uh, the solo cross country and never completed it. He found girls, he found computers, and, and uh, ran out of money and a bunch of stuff. And so... That's how that happened. Uh, okay, yeah. girls. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, and so uh, it, it, he derailed. It, it, he derailed. He got derailed as far as the flying went. He sidetracked. His, yeah, his it's certainly sidetracked. His his uh, forte is uh, computer programming. Mm-hmm. And now he works out in. Uh, he lives out in Seattle, and he's had an illustrious career in that realm but he's always wanted to fly and we made a pact because about i went out and got my ticket later that year um and uh uh in my senior year and then we both had bought david clark h1020 headsets and uh i bought i bought his um uh about uh, i think it was a year after we started flight training and with with the uh the caveat that i had to to sell it back to him or give it back to him when he got his license <laughs> so what happened? So yesterday, Farid uh, owes he, him some headsets. <laughs> I owe him a beat up H1020 because he he, uh, <laughs> he finally got his private ticket out in uh, out in he flying out of Boeing Field. Awesome, awesome, oh, very oh, man! Cool. You, you, you so really should send him some ARs, yeah. you know. So Nick Hodap, congratulations! Uh, finally got your private ticket. I'm really proud of you. Can't wait to come out and and uh, fly around the sound with you a little bit. And, and just oh, and in, rec- in recognition of his accomplishment, we're going to give him a free subscription to UCAP. Oh, yeah, right. There you go. There you go. There you go. Well, and while we're talking well, about it. Yeah, and other shout-outs. Dave, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was just going to put this on the list independent of knowing a friend. But I was in a longtime acquaintance of mine in the aviation business, a young lady named Susan Sheets who is the president of the National Aircraft Resale Association. Now, you know, this is an association made up of dealers and brokers who specialize in selling corporate aircraft, business turbine aircraft. 
uh, not a very large association, uh, about 70, 80 members. Uh, but they, they are a small percentage of that business, uh, the number of businesses there, but they represent a disproportionately large number of transactions. Susan's worked in the business for decades. She used to work for Dassault, uh, Falcon Jet folks. Uh, she soloed at Jeb's old home field, Manassas, Yay. over the Labor Day weekend. Good for her. Uh, we were on a phone call a couple of days ago talking about some business stuff from one of my clients, World Aircraft Sales, and she happened to mention that she'd been out flying and soloed in a Skyhawk with a six-pack stack, not a not not a modern all electronic G Wiz panel. She wanted to she wanted to learn in something with the old style instruments because she figured she could always easy more easily transition to the new stuff. So That's a good point. It, it's a very good point. Susan's a bright lady. She, she is. I, I know ship. Susan well, and, and uh, um, um, smart cookie, and uh, um, oh, and a real treat yeah, to talk to. She just got such it. enthusiasm, uh, and and you know, working a in this business and b in this business inside the Beltway and c inside the Beltway. Uh, it can be really easy to get cynical, Dave, or a little bit uh, shaded about the whole thing, Jeb. And, uh, and Manassas you know, Susan, is not an easy airport to solo. That's right. Susan that's really true. doesn't not. ever exhibit any of this, even in private conversation. And I've always admired that about her. But, you know, Susan, I, I know you know about the podcast now because we talked about it a little bit that day. And I'm going to make sure you get an email saying that. Jim and I talked about you here on the podcast, but congratulations on losing your shirt tail. And feel free to call on us for anything as you move onward and upward because the enthusiasm that lady voiced to me about all the doors this opens up to her was as off the scale as anybody I've ever met. And it was just a treat. So, way to go, Susan. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Mega congrats. Uh, I have one quick shout-out, one last uh, mention of my visit to EAA 225, uh, and that is that uh, they're going to be having a Young Eagles uh, rally uh, on Saturday, October 11th at Skyhaven Airport in Rochester, New Hampshire. Very cool. So if you're uh, – <clears throat> they actually have one this weekend, uh, but uh, this podcast probably won't be on, on the net by then, um, but they're having one uh, up at Sanford, my new favorite airport, uh, Sanford, Maine. Um, and I'm probably going to drive up there, and, and uh, unfortunately I'm not going to be able to fly because I can't stay very long, but uh, I'm going to check it out and maybe help out on the ground a little bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, but there is plenty of time uh, to uh, for people if you're in the New England area or the northern, northern New England area, uh, and uh, either – would like to give some kids airplane rides, or if you know a kid who would like an airplane ride, uh, uh, find your way to Skyhaven Airport uh, on Saturday, October 11th, or I believe you can get some information at their website, which is, uh, I believe, EAA225.org. So that's uh, that's my shout-out. Jeb, Fareed, you got any last shout-outs before we wrap this thing up? I have another shout-out in my chapter, the one I lead here in Rockford. That's right. You're You're a chapter president, aren't you? EA22 is having their fly-in fall lunch on October 4th from 11 to 3 at 1 Charlie 8, which is a grass strip on the west side of Rockford right in the city. Um, For folks folks that didn't catch that Rockford reference when we mentioned it a little bit earlier, when the Experimental Aircraft Association had its first fly-in in in 1953, it was in Milwaukee in Mitchell Field. And a few years, the folks in Milwaukee decided that EAA was more hassle than they wanted to really deal with. 
Uh, I'm sure in retrospect, somebody realizes how short-sighted that was. But mm-hmm. um, Tom, uh, Paul Pobrezny and Harry Zeisloft and all the gang that started it and moved it over to Rockford, where it was home for several more years until uh, through 1969, when for some reason or another, the folks at Rockford decided that they really didn't want to keep accommodating how big the show was getting. And, and how big it was expected to get and shined on some permanent improvements, at which point Steve Whitman, a legendary air racer and coincidentally the manager of a little airport in a little town known as Oshkosh, Wisconsin, invited EAA to relocate their annual fly-in to what is now known as Whitman Regional Airport in 1970, and the rest is history. That's right. This is how strong the the, uh, the Rockford connection is. A longtime board member, Bob Gillenswan, who just retired last uh, spring, uh, passed away over the summertime just before uh, AirVenture 2008. And so we just uh, want to say once again to remember all the contributions he did to the Long to the board and to EAA because he's been there almost since the beginning. Yeah, that's very true. cool. Excellent. So, Fareed, say again the uh, the date and location of your fly-in. Yeah, Saturday, October fourth at One Charlie Eight, which is Cottonwood Airport on the west side of Rockford, not the RFD, the International Airport to the south, uh, where they call themselves uh, Northwest Chicagoland Airport uh, or Chicago Rockford. So, technically. Cottonwood is Rockford's only airport. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Okay. <laughs> Jeb, you got anything for us? No. No, let's get a fork in it. Okay. Jack, uh, one, one, uh, I just wanted to say that uh, I, I, I have a shout-out for you. Uh-huh. Um, uh, that uh, because we didn't give you a shout-out during AirVenture on uh, the second of the podcast you did there. Oh, so okay. I will send it along to you. You can include it on the final edit. This, is, this, oh, has, to do, cool. this has to do with those those snarky little things that you guys put together for Jeb and Dave, and I was so uh, pleased. I love those. I love those. I, yeah. I made one for you, just for you, Jack. Oh, well, I know you <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, we'll, oh, 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 Mr. Cotter. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> thank you, Fareed, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. I hope you'll come back sometime in the future. Uh, Fareed Gio is uh, also known as Afterburner Al of EAA Radio. Uh, Fareed is the uh, co-station manager of EAA Radio and also a Cessna CJ3 pilot. And you can learn more about him and his work, uh, at, first of all, at airventure.org slash radio, which is the EAA radio site. Uh, and he, he wildly has offered up his email address. So if you want to say hi to, to Fareed slash Afterburner Al, uh, send email to afterburneral at comcast.net. So thank you, Fareed. Thanks for having me. We also want to thank Mad Max for taking a few minutes to uh, join us by cell phone from the Reno Air Races and uh, tell us about some of the things that are going on out there and give us just a little bit of the flavor of that uh, really exciting event. So thanks to Mad Max. You can uh, visit with Mad Max and ask him more questions and read some of his other writing uh, in the UCAP forums. Uh, you can then, uh, I believe that you can go in there and then search for all the postings that have been made by, by Mad Max. Thanks to him. Jeb Burnside, of course, is an aviation journalist currently serving as editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Learn more about Jeb and his work at jebburnside.com, aviationsafetymagazine.com, and avweb.com. 
Dave Higdon, of course, is an aviation photographer and a senior editor for Kit Planes magazine. He's also the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales magazine. Learn more about Dave and his work at kitplanes.com, avbuyer.com, slash worldaircraftsales, or just Google his name and uh, and read about all the things that he has uh, done over the years. And I am Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. And visit us all, uh, particularly in the forums, but also in the wiki and and maybe we'll revive the blog one of these days at uncontrolledairspace.com. So, David, what were you going to say? Everybody go flying because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Live longer with aviation. That's right. Hey, that's enough talking. Let's all go flying. With leaves in his hair and lineys on his breath, it's Jack Hudson defending the New Hampshire countryside from the Green Mountain Boys. Welcome back to Uncontrolled Airspace. 